0: Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity, Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today, we're very pleased to have with us Ralph Izzo. The president and CEO and chairman of PSENG over in New Jersey. It's also one of the 10 largest utilities in the United States. Hi, Ralph.
1: Hi, Marty. How are you today?
0: Very good. I look forward to talking to you about your perceptions of sustainability and how it's driving change at your utility. Uh, I wonder if you could start out by telling us what sustainability means to you, a, t- a utility and how you may think about it differently from the public.
1: Yeah, so we're proud of the fact that uh, for about 12 years in a row now, we've been named to the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. And we look at sustainability in three broad categories. There's one in particular that I want to focus on in a few minutes, but those three categories are just what you would expect them to be, and they often go by the letters ESG, uh, where the E stands for environment, the S stands for social issues, and G stands for governance. So from a sustainability point of view, we look at uh, the demographics of our employee population and demographics of the talent pool of are we an attractive company to an increasingly diverse workforce. You can take that same two sentences and change the word uh, workforce to supplier community. And uh, and then from a governance point of view, we make sure that we are uh, doing the things that are considered best practices from the point of view of our board oversight to our corporate oversight uh, uh, from a management perspective and our operating performance and how that comports with our uh, most important uh, values, be that uh,
0: compliance and integrity and things of that nature. Let me, if I could just interject. uh, Sure, sure. When people think of New Jersey, they don't think of a hotbed of sustainability. They think of California, perhaps, or, or other states. Is that perception correct, or do you think we're missing the boat here?
1: I, I, I think it is not correct, I, but I understand where it comes from. So New Jersey being one of the original 13 colonies, and therefore being one of the first states to industrialize, uh, if I'm not mistaken, still has the unfortunate honor of having the greatest number of Superfund sites in its state borders. And if if that's not true, it certainly has the highest density of Superfund sites. Uh, but I think that that was born out of an era that literally preceded the existence of EPA. And the pendulum has swung quite the opposite direction. And now as a state, which typically is number two or number three in per capita income, it is no longer a center of manufacturing, but as a center of the service economy, has a highly, highly educated workforce, an outstanding K through 12 educational system. The state really does pride itself on being a leader in uh, social and environmental issues. Governance is probably not a sociopolitical uh, topic that comes up very often in the context of how people view a state as to whether or not it's a sustainability leader.
0: Would you say your public is pulling you in this direction, or um, you're leading your public, or is it serendipitous in a marriage of interests?
1: I think from what is a traditional environmental point of view, our public has been leading. But that would be more from kind of a waste disposal, waste recycling, waste reuse. From the point of view of the, the role that energy has in ensuring a sustainable future, I'd like to think we've been leading, and that goes to a very important topic, which is, uh, I think, the single most important aspect of sustainability, and that being climate change. And there I I feel very strongly that we have been in the forefront of both national and state uh, public policy uh, as it pertains to what needs to be done to uh, have any chance of doing what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, sponsored by the UN, has said needs to be done.
0: Do you think New Jersey is particularly vulnerable to rising seas?
1: Yeah, I mean, the answer is emphatically yes, for a couple of reasons. The most obvious, of course, being our shoreline. But uh, even without focusing on, on our, the fact that we're a coastal state, just to go back to something I said a few minutes ago, because we were an early industrialized state, a great deal of our infrastructure was located along transportation corridors, which during the Industrial Revolution, candidly, was low-lying areas of canals and rivers, uh, and with uh, the severity of weather systems being what they are nowadays, uh, the, the potential for flooding and uh, uh, tidal overflows is just greatly increased. So. So, yes, New Jersey is vulnerable both as a coastal state and as an early uh, industrialized state that put a lot of its infrastructure in places that are now much more vulnerable to storms.
0: So let's zero in on what you just said a minute ago, which is that you feel uh, you're leading as a utility on this topic. Can you give us one or two really concrete examples?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, you know, we were early on advocates and continue to be for the establishment of a price on carbon. Uh, We encouraged the state to join something called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative uh, back, I guess it was 12 years ago, uh, which we thought could serve as a model for a nationwide cap-and-trade system. And uh, we actively participated in congressional hearings on legislation back during the Obama administration, commonly referred to as Waxman and Markey. Uh, In the absence of that, being successful, and it was not successful, we have pursued a variety of state initiatives while continuing that advocacy. Uh, Chief among those has been uh, over $400 million in energy efficiency expenditures, which we think is by far the cheapest way to avoid carbon emissions. We've also been huge proponents of preservation of existing nuclear fleet, uh, which We managed to steer through with the help of uh, our Senate president, Senator Steve Sweeney, and the current governor, Governor Phil Murphy, legislation and and subsequent regulatory outcomes that help preserve what is over 90% of the carbon-free energy in the state uh, coming out of our three nuclear plants. We're the number one developer of solar energy in the state.
0: Well, I remember that goes back to your putting solar on your light poles what's the status of that project
1: yeah uh, that did not um catch on Uh, while it was certainly a good use of dead airspace i think we've all come to realize that the most cost-effective way to attach solar is through grid connected solar in uh, higher quantities than uh, one panel at a time on a pole
0: so are you are you putting out um utility-owned solar installations in New Jersey right now?
1: We are, yeah. And we've been reclaiming old industrial sites, landfills, things of that sort. Now, now you do have to realize that in New Jersey, large-scale grid-connected solar uh, is measured in the 5 to 10 megawatt size, which is not quite the scale that you might see in some of the southwestern states where land is not as uh, candidly expensive and unavailable. So, so you know, advocacy for a price on carbon, pursuit of energy efficiency, preserving our nuclear fleet, continuing to invest in renewables. We've, we've recently announced that uh, we have an option to participate up to 25% in an offshore wind project that will be built by uh, Ersted, a Danish company.
0: Talk about that for a second, because as you know... In parts of Europe, it's really taken off, but it's been lagging in the United States. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're going to be surprised by the, the speed of development of offshore wind, particularly off the, the northeast?
1: Yes, I do think that there's, there is there's a, a commitment that is firmer than what has been articulated in the past. Uh, one of the big differentiators between the U.S. and other parts of the world is availability of onshore wind which is a lot less expensive than offshore wind, uh, in those cases where the wind resource is rich. So the Great Plains, Texas, uh, parts of California, where you have comparable wind resource to what we have uh, in the eastern seaboard in the Atlantic Ocean, it's obviously just a lot cheaper to build it on land. But as states have pursued aggressive renewable portfolio targets or decarbonization targets in the absence of federal action. Uh, then in the east, it does appear that offshore wind is actually a lower-cost solution than uh, rooftop solar and onshore winds just simply isn't available to us. So so I do think it's, a, it's the best supply option uh, um, in terms of new supply. It is far more expensive than preserving the existing nuclear fleet and it is quite a bit more expensive, even more so than than what I just mentioned a moment ago. Than than energy efficiency, right? So, so if you were to stack these things up, energy efficiency is by far the least cost option. Preserving the nuclear fleet is uh, a close second, and then uh, offshore wind, right now at the price points we're seeing, is less expensive than rooftop solar, which is the Kind of the, the the laggard, although the area that's received the greatest amount of investment uh, in the east.
0: Do you have any reliance on coal generation?
1: No, we do. Well, I, actually, yes, I take that back. We have uh, one remaining coal plant uh, that we operate in southeastern Connecticut that we plan to retire in June of 2021. And that, that is our one and only remaining coal plant. It's essentially a winter peaking unit and just given the capacity constraints associated with natural gas in that part of the country, we I thought we would keep that online until that point in time. The, the reason for that trigger date is at that point in time, some significant capital improvements would need to be made to make it compliant with certain provisions of the Clean Water Act that we expect.
0: As you look around the country, uh, you may have heard that AEP and Southern said they were going to be pulling out of the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity. Do you think Coal's days are numbered in this country as a, a ge- source of generation.
1: Well, I, I, I think they are from the point of view of the multi-decade availability of natural gas that just about every uh, government agency and, not, and, and consultancy predicts in terms of natural gas availability, right? So you know, the beauty of coal was it was abundant and inexpensive, The downside of coal is it contained just about every element in the periodic table so that you were constantly struggling to keep uh, the emissions as clean as possible, be that from mercury or SO2 or fine particulates. Uh, But when we began to recognize the growing threat from carbon dioxide emissions, then the need for carbon capture and storage loomed large. But once you develop the technology for carbon capture and storage, And you have this much cleaner fossil fuel available to you in the form of natural gas, which doesn't have SO2, doesn't have mercury, doesn't have fine particulates, and is now as abundant and as inexpensive as coal, you just have to say to yourself, well, why would you use coal, which has all those other kind of traditional pollutant challenges. So I, so so to the extent that we develop carbon capture and storage, I think that the preferred fossil fuel of choice will be natural gas.
0: Where do you see the the, the move towards increased uh, decentralization of generation?
1: You know, I'm I'm not a big believer in that being something that is sustainable in the absence of the generous subsidies that it receives now. Uh, you know, energy consumption is a inherently uh, capital intent, uh, I'm sorry, energy consumption is an inherently low utilization uh, attribute. I mean, residential customers use energy 25 30 percent of the day, and some businesses use it a lot more. But when you add them all up, most utilities' assets are used 40 to 50 percent of the time, and it's a constant struggle, right? Because th- these are capital intensive assets, so you want them used uh, with much greater frequency. So, the thought that individual customers will be able to self-generate and do that in an economic fashion is contrary to all of the history of power generation and power consumption that we've ever seen. So uh, even if you combine it with storage, you basically now have two capital intensive assets that are going to be underutilized at some point during the course of the day, right? Because when you're consuming from your uh, supply option, you're not storing. (laughs) And when you're uh, using from your storage option, you're not supplying. So so I'm just not a believer that this is really viable. Right? They, they look viable right now because of just the tremendous uh, s- subsidies that are available both at the federal level in the form of tax credits and at the state level in the form of renewable portfolio standard subsidies that are granted.
0: I'd like to return you to something you said at the top about uh, – Workforce diversity and how that ties into sustainability. Can you talk a little more about that?
1: Sure. Uh, so New Jersey, as an example, is now a state where uh, we, we no longer have a majority of ethnicity uh, or race. We have a plurality of, of uh, Caucasians. But I, I think if not this year, it's next year where that's expected to dip below 50%. And you know, we have a robust Latino, uh, people of color, uh, Asian, Indian, uh, Far Eastern Asian uh, populations that are you know, just a tremendous richness and diversity of talent and cultures. But it's very different than our traditional population, which in the utility industry, first of all, was largely dominated by men and uh, largely dominated by ca- Caucasian men. Who did a great job. Uh, We're we're not we're not suggesting we don't want to still be a a great and attractive place for for that constituency. But if but if we're not viewed as a welcoming environment or an environment that uh, is eager to uh, embrace the the kind of ethnic and uh, racial diversity I just alluded to, uh, we would literally be limiting ourselves to half of the 49 percent of the population that's available to us. Right. assuming uh, half of the Caucasian population is female and half is male. Uh, and that's not a way to run a business uh, by limiting yourself to 25% of the available labor pool. So uh, we're determined to be uh, an employer of choice uh, for uh, everyone who's out there.
0: But how does, that tra- how does that touch sustainability?
1: Oh, well, I mean, if you don't have a, a talented employee population, then you're not going to be able to uh, provide the level of service that customers expect uh, and regulators demand. Uh, So your your economic sustainability comes into
0: question at that point. Could it be something as simple as if you do not have a diverse workforce, you won't be able to explain and get buy-in on sustainability with a diverse population?
1: Okay, so, 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 yeah, I mean, that is certainly a way to, to phrase it without question, Marty. But I was referring to sustainability uh, here, not so much from the point of view of the sustainability of the planet, which is really at the heart of climate change, but the sustainability of our company, right? I mean, our shareholders look at us as a 116-year-old company. We've paid a dividend every year for the past 112 years. They want to know, will we be around tomorrow? And, and my answer is, of course, we'll be around tomorrow, but I want to think about the next hundred years. Uh, and, and in that, in that regard, uh, as a sustainable entity, uh, we have to think about being an employer of choice.
0: So let, let's linger on that for a second. Uh, I'm sure you've read the Wall Street Journal and, and the Business School articles that have come out in the past year mm-hmm. suggesting that major corporations in America are at the beginning of, of rethinking their very core essence to something beyond – maximizing shareholder value. What's your take on that, and how does that relate to the whole sustainability discussion?
1: Yeah, I, you know. So I know that uh, there was a lot of attention given to the, the Business Roundtable Manifesto. Uh, we're not members of the BRT. If we had been, I would have signed on to that as a no-brainer. We've had an ongoing philosophy here at PSEG that uh, you have to... Make sure that you focus on your employees and give them the tools and the talents that they need, the training, the equipment, uh, the complementary skills uh, to be successful. And we define that success as taking good care of our customers and the communities we serve, uh, because if we don't do that, then we're not going to be able to achieve the economic outcomes that our shareholders expect. And if we do achieve those economic outcomes that our shareholders expect, then we can handsomely reward our employees, who can then, and it becomes sort of a self-reinforcing cycle. So, this notion that one can have a long-term viable business and simply focus on one constituency without paying careful attention to the 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 outcomes on your others is just a puzzle to me. I I don't know. Uh, where anybody ever thought that maximizing shareholder value can be achieved without being an employer of choice or one that delights their customers.
0: Let's add a, a, an additional wrinkle to that, and that is, historically, uh, a company is venerable to yours, if you look at back over a century, I'd say 99% of that century, there was a perception in your company and across the industry that the way you made money is through increasing sales of uh, volumes of electrons, uh, increasing the capital investment in facilities to produce those electrons. Do you see, and are are we yet? Um, do we yet have in view what the business model will be uh, when that's not the case? How will you make money uh, and thrive when you're not selling more?
1: Yeah, we are actively working to change that paradigm. Uh, we view ourselves as an energy infrastructure company, and not as someone who lives to pump greater volumes of gas or electricity to our customers. Uh, and we are right now in the midst of a dialogue with our state regulators advocating for our by what will be by far our single biggest uh, uh, capital investment program. And it's all around the exact opposite. It's around energy efficiency. We've we've filed for the right to invest $3.6 billion, uh, $2.5 billion in energy efficiency, $600 million in advanced metering infrastructure that we think will enable even greater energy efficiency, and then about uh, the, the balance in electric transportation uh, and battery storage. But $3.1 billion of the 3. billion Five three point six billion is dedicated to helping our customers use energy more intelligently, uh, which we think can be done in a regulatory system that allows us to make more money. Actually, does add to shareholder value while lowering the customer bill, and that's not foo foo dust. That's the, the the magic there is simply that uh, if we help the customer save uh, in a way that basically decreases our fuel costs then we're not in the fuel business, so we're not harmed by that. right? And if we can do that by giving you better thermostats, better lighting systems, more efficient uh, space heating, space air conditioning systems, that's part of energy infrastructure that we are delighted to help customers deploy. Uh, So so we don't see our future as one that's determined by simply building ever-increasing amounts of supply. We do think the grid has to be more reliable than ever before uh, for two reasons. Number one, Our customers' dependency upon electricity continues to increase, whether it's because of their uh, reliance on smart devices or their their reliance on electric transportation uh, or a myriad of other uh, continuing efforts to electrify the economy, which we think will become increasingly important as part of climate change. Uh, Combined with the fact that uh, weather systems are much more severe nowadays and storms are more severe, so the grid was not designed for this kind of uh, weather phenomenon that we're seeing. So, so you have greater risk to the grid and greater dependency upon upon, upon electricity, so those combine to warrant greater investments in the electric
0: system. I'm going to ask you, uh, when, when you make those observations, you're, you're not only speaking as a utility executive, but a research scientist with a PhD in physics. In that sense, um, it, as you look at the grid what from a scientific perspective what from uh, a technological perspective can be done to increase reliability of the grid and uh, is it as efficient as it can be and is the research that needs to be done being done to get it where it needs to be
1: yeah so there's a there's a whole variety of things that can be done some are mundane and don't require an advanced degree in plasma physics, or, 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 any, or any STEM field for that matter. Uh, let me just go back for a third time to what I said before about some of our physical assets are in low-lying areas, and we placed relay cabinets uh, on, on the ground. I mean, you know, we, we, the cabinetry is on the ground, and then there's equipment inside the cabinetry, but when you find that some of those low-lying areas can now have water intrusion of 6 to 12 inches, those cabinets need to be lifted off the ground, Uh, Similarly, uh, the ability to isolate circuits so that when you lose a circuit, you don't lose everyone who's on that circuit, but you can segment the circuit a little bit uh, more than you can today so that instead of losing 3,000 customers, maybe you lose 300 customers because you can segment it uh, better. Uh, Having more in the way of solid-state devices that can allow us to control our transmission system uh, more rapidly than we uh, currently can with some of our kind of uh, mechanical devices that we use in terms of our switchgear. So you you, see everywhere from the most basic uh, improvements to a little bit more sophisticated knowledge on how the grid is operating uh, will all help to make the grid more resilient. And then there's other simple stuff as well. Marty, you, you design for certain wind speeds, and we're seeing greater wind speeds when we have, uh, or, or hurricanes coming through than we did in the past. So, so it's just the construction standards that you apply to your overhead system and your poles. So it's it's not rocket science at this point that the grid could benefit from.
0: Okay. Uh, last, since you do have a, a specialty going way back in fusion, it's it's time for me to check in on where you see fusion reactors and, and whether you touted SMRs um you touted nuclear. Do you think a SMRs, small modular reactors will play a role?
1: I do. I am a fan of nuclear. I think that it is a dispatchable and clean source of electricity uh, where the safety issues can be managed to uh, meet uh, society's demands for that. Uh, I do think the waste issue is also uh, very susceptible to an engineering solution. I'm not as convinced it's lends itself to an easy political solution. Uh, To the extent that SMRs might be more expensive per unit, per megawatt, if you will, I do think that they are something that are less risky from the point of view of kind of betting the company uh, when you talk about uh, the, the total cost of a project being something that people would be more willing to take on if it's 100 megawatts versus 1,600 megawatts or 1,500 megawatts. And and I'm not alone in that. I think you're seeing some very thoughtful people throw a shout-out to Mr. Bill Gates, who's been active in uh, not only fission, but in fusion as well. And and I do think that the sophisticated members of the environmental community are beginning to recognize the important value that nuclear contributes to carbon-free energy in the future.
0: So my my last question is, you've been steering a a major U.S. utility since 2006 – what do you like most about your job today compared to back then?
1: I, I, I do like the effect that we can have on climate change. I mean, the thought that we can decarbonize electricity and electrify the economy uh, is just, it's, it's an, an impact that I never dreamed we would be called upon to step up to, to, to have. And uh, it's one that I'm eager to see PSEG lead the way in achieving.
0: Great. Thanks all for listening to Grid Talk, and thanks to our special guest, Ralph Izzo, for sharing his insights about changes and approaches to sustainability in the utility sector. You have been listening to Grid Talk. You can send feedback or ask questions at our site, and also learn more about upcoming podcasts by going to smartgrid.gov gridtalk. Also, we encourage you to give the podcast a rating on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks and goodbye. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy, Office of Electricity, Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.